Hi, and welcome back to Pipoca on Point. I'm really excited to share my first interview with a guest who we're going to call Jasmine. She's going to tell us about a man she met, eventually married, and had a baby with, and was very lucky to escape due to his abusive nature over the span of several years. I've met so many women from many walks of life who were or still are in an abusive relationship. Jasmine shares red flags to look out for and advice for you if you have a friend suffering from something similar. I chose her story because it ends on a happy note and I believe she will inspire you to get the help you need and see a way out. That being said, let's get right into it. Jasmine, why don't you tell us how you met? I've heard this happen, you know, many times that one of the things online dating does is it facilitates your mind um, in a way that makes you open to actually meeting someone. So I've heard it time and time again from friends. uh, When you put yourself out there on online dating, that is also the same time you end up meeting someone in person. And that is exactly what happened to me. I was at a cultural festival in my hometown at the time. And I, someone came up to me and just simply introduced themselves. And I was thinking, you know, it's been so hard to meet someone. I've tried the online dating apps and now here I I am with someone actually approaching me in person. So that's how we met. Mm -hmm. Okay. And where did things go from there? Did you hang out at the festival that day? Um, Did you exchange numbers that day? How did you basically interact with him? Um, So I, at the time, said I didn't want to give my number out and I didn't have very much personal information or so I thought on Facebook. So I said, why don't we exchange Facebook accounts? Wow. Okay. It's interesting you say that because I've done several episodes on online safety and how much information you give. And you just said something I've talked about before where you don't really realize the size of your audience online. So thanks a lot for bringing that up as well. Okay, go on. So uh, nothing really accelerated very quickly. Um, You know, it was a lot of back and forth and I was very busy. I was focused on my studies at the time as well. Um, And that did take priority over dating in that moment. Um, But one of the things that he did that made him stand apart from the other people that took an interest in me was his persistence. He was extremely persistent. Um, And, you know, they say hindsight is 2020. So, you know, things that I realize about that persistence now, I didn't realize about that persistence in the beginning. Um, So essentially, he was able to step in when I was in a bad place with uh, another relationship that had ended. And I said, you know what, why don't I just go for the nice guy? Why don't I just go for the guy that has been continuously asking me out? For a lengthy period of time, you know, despite me essentially putting him off at first. Um, And that's kind of how where my mindset was at the time that we started talking in a remote, more romantic fashion. Okay, I see. Yeah. And I get what you mean about consistency, because it's very attractive, like consistency is so scarce. I'm actually going to bring that up in a future episode as well. um, When I talk about dating and finding your person, etc. Okay, so back to you. Then when was, I guess, your first red flag or did you have any red flags? Um, I know that you ended up marrying him and we'll get into the details of that. But was there anything pre-marriage that was a red flag that you ignored? 
So I would say that a lot of the issues I had accelerated in phases. So essentially, this individual had, you know, certain um, monumental life moments that accelerated uh, his temper um, and his sort of ill will towards me. So in the beginning, it wasn't consistent. You know, we would go long stretches of time where things were essentially fine. You know, it's a dating phase. There's not the pressure of marriage. There's not the pressure of having to be living under the same roof with another person. So you can really only get to know someone, you know, to a certain extent under those circumstances. They say you don't truly know someone until you've lived with them, right? Yeah. Exactly. So, um, you know, the things that uh, looking back, there were red flags, but could I see them? No. And why? Because they were happening in isolation. They weren't consistently happening all the time. When they did happen, you know, there was always a very logical explanation. Right. So for me, you know, the way I was raised, it was always, you know, to have empathy, have compassion towards other people. Try to put yourself in their shoes and understand how they're feeling. And, you know, uh, I spent most of my life essentially studying in advanced degrees. I hadn't had a lot of exposure to the world of serious dating in terms of talking to someone that I may potentially marry. Um, So I didn't have, yeah, I didn't have a lot of experience in this area. So, you know, things that were red flags, yes, there would be a a flare-up of a temper here and there, but he always had a logical explanation for it. So, for example, one explanation explanation will be, you know, my own family has treated me badly. You know, my circumstances in the past make me react this way. Mm -hmm. Um, So always that he had a victim mentality. And me being, you know, sort of an inexperienced person with, um, not a lot of aptitude in this area would say, you know, it's okay. You know, things are going to get better. Let's talk this out and figure out how to move forward. You know, this was always my reaction. You know, in retrospect, my reaction should have been, you know, these are huge red flags that are only going to get worse, but these are things you don't know at the time. Right. And that's when you actually, that's an opportunity for you to set your standards or your boundaries with someone. It's actually when, when something occurs, you know, um, yes. Because you might excuse it once or twice, but when someone keeps playing the victim mentality, it's actually a turn off. As in, like, why don't you just take responsibility for your behavior? Um, if I remember correctly, he was a few years older than you, right? Yeah, we had a 10 year age gap. Oh, 10 years. Yes. So <laughs> I don't know. It's kind of funny, but it's like we expect someone 10 years older than us to be, you know, more emotionally mature and um, handle situations better than us let's say but that never ends up happening lately that's what I see okay well, so- I mean, I, if mm-hmm. you think about it it's it's not so much the age it's mm-hmm. the type of psychological makeup that you're dealing with in another person so someone that suffers from some sort of psychological deficiency it doesn't mm-hmm. matter how old they are their life experience isn't going to inform them in a way to make better decisions, which is what would happen if someone was on a sort of a regular developmental path. So, but how do you think you can, I guess, determine that, you know, because you're also feeling romantic towards someone. So I think us, like men or women, if you're having romantic feelings towards someone, we tend to excuse their behavior more. You know what I mean? So is there anything you can teach me the audience like how like how many chances do you give someone now in retrospect how many chances do you give someone or 
you know, what has to happen for you to actually just say, okay, this person is just, you know, mentally not fit for me at this stage? Well, you know, I don't think there's a mathematical formulation for it. And, Mm -hmm. you know, I'm not a psychologist. I can only speak from my own experience here. Right. In my Mm -hmm. experience and just sort of also now being sort of on the outside of that, this situation, being able to look back and think about it and also seeing, you know, various friends and colleagues going through similar situations in their marriages. Um, I think one pattern I've noticed Mm -hmm. uh, just from personal experience is that those isolated events accelerate. When you accept them, they accelerate because the person now knows what your reaction to that type of behavior is going to be. So if your reaction is empathy, your reaction is forgiveness, or your reaction is uh, excusing the behavior, that really only like sort of perpetuates the acceleration of that down the road. Yeah, because they're, they know they can get away with it. Like, okay, you've forgiven exactly. them in the past. That's fine. You didn't set your boundaries when you had a chance to. So this is something also to to start practicing in the future, you know, with like friendships, romantic relationships, with coworkers, et cetera. Okay, so what do you think triggered him to be angry or act irrational? You know, I I can say that it could be the most irrational thing <laughs> that triggered him. It wasn't necessarily any action on my part or, um, you know, anything concrete that I was doing that would create his frustration, but it was essentially him dealing with whatever was frustrating him in his life and taking it out on the person that was closest to him at the time. So for example, it could be something as simple as, you know, I planned to go to the beach today and now it's raining and that's your fault, right? There was not necessarily a rational connection. Correct. But because it was happening in sort of isolated um, incidents, you know, after having long stretches of weeks at a time where things were fine, um, it was hard to really gauge the cumulative effect of that behavior because it was so infrequent in the beginning. And I would say that that's something that accelerated over time. Mm -hmm. And by the time I was in the last year of my marriage, I was able to distinctly, you know, determine at that time what it was that was creating these triggers. Wow. Okay, wait, before we get to the marriage part, tell us like what happened before Um, you, you dated for how long before he proposed and then you got married and then um, he, to my, to my um, understanding, there was abuse in the relationship. So like, was there any abuse before marriage and what kind of abuse if you're comfortable sharing? So the only emotional? thing that happened before marriage was, you know, psychological abuse that I wasn't able to realize, you know, being within that situation that that's what was happening. Um, it's an interesting thing when you are on the outside of the relationship after the fact, you can think back of various incidents and say, you know, wow, this is what was actually happening. I just didn't know at that time. So a couple things he did is he, you know, took on this project of isolation. And this is something that I've seen happen to friends as well, where slowly, um, you know, you're in a relationship with someone, they're meeting your friends and, one by one, somehow your friends are disappearing and you can't understand what's happening. And he is, you know, engaging in this project where he is removing the people in your life 
that you lean on and that you rely on. Yeah, I was now, one of them. <laughs> I was yeah, one of them. If, we didn't talk for like four years because of him. I remember that. Thankfully, so I would say, you know, him. there's two pieces of advice that I would give here. Yeah. One is if you have a friend that's in a relationship that you were very close with them before um, and you find that they're being distant. Now, a lot of people credit this to they're being distant because they're busy with their new life. This is something I do not do with any of my friends. You know, Mm -hmm. um, I have uh, right now several friends is something I know I've mentioned to you before going through sort of this process that I had gone through. And one thing I do is, you know, typical, you call someone, you leave a voicemail or text message and you wait for them to call back. If they don't call you back, you might do it one more time, but that's it. You know, otherwise you feel like the person is not, you know, responding to you. Mm -hmm. One thing I do is I actually pester people now. (laughs) <laughs> for oh. friends that I know that are in these situations, I will okay. call them and I will call them seven, eight times with no embarrassment of having called right. this person that many times till they finally answer the phone. Because really, you don't really know what's going on in other people's lives. But so that sorry, for me would, is one of the key, one of the key takeaways. You the other would pester them just because I want to clarify for everyone. Yes. So like you would, you would call them a few times a day, but you already know they're in an abusive relationship at this point or you just. Whether you know or not, if you have someone that's now either newly in a relationship and you're seeing a change in their behavior, Mm -hmm. still call them, still check in on them. And if you know someone has had an argument or is, you know, possibly starting to go through a situation like the one that I've been through, um, I would call constantly. Sometimes I would call and leave three voicemails before someone calls me back, which is not really the etiquette of, you know, calling your friends, right? Yeah. But I still do. I still do it now and I don't feel bad about it or them not responding to me because I've had that experience. Okay. And there's a second piece of advice that I'd want to share here sort of in this area. Yeah. Uh, You know, you will not see your relationship clearly from within your relationship. So -hmm. if you have people in your life that you trust that tell you something about the person you're with, Don't take it as that person's jealous or that person doesn't want to see my happiness or that person doesn't really know my partner or that person doesn't really know what's happening in my relationship. You know, sort of heed that advice. Think think thoughtfully about what people try to say. So that's all part of this isolation project. You cannot get the opinions of other people if you're isolated from your friends and your family. I've had friends tell me now after hearing my experience, I want you to tell me. You know, if something is happening in my relationship, I want you to tell me. I want you to interfere. I want you to do what is the opposite of social convention and what is the opposite of being appropriate. I want you to tell me because they themselves have also realized that we don't know from the inside of a situation what's really happening. We can't see clearly till we're outside of that situation. And I think one of the godsends in my relationship was that I was never isolated from my family. Although I lost most of my friends, I stayed very close to my family and he tried Mm-hmm. He tried to put blame on my mom or blame on my brother um, mm-hmm. for interfering in our marriage. And he wasn't successful in that regard. So I still had people to lean on when I was trying to get out. And not everyone is, you know, as lucky as I am in that sense. Yeah. Thank God you had them still around. Yes. And so before marriage, it was just mainly psychological abuse, you said. So yeah, what Yeah, a little like kind of temper tantrums, right. you know, overreactions to things like, yeah. you know... I've lost my, you know, credit card. You know, the reaction to that is that's awful. You know, let's retrace your steps. Uh, let's call and cancel the card. Right. But, you know, the reaction you're getting is an irrational reaction. You know, this is your fault. 
you distracted like, me. Instead of dealing with the problem, they're angry about the problem. You know, yeah. that's sort of another example of the type of thing that would happen. And it creates, it actually creates an, an environment where you feel like you have to walk on eggshells around that person. And I remember because I visited you at a time when you were married and, um, or at least you lived together at the time. And I remember you acting that way and I could see it. And because you and I don't live in the same, let's say, geographical area, we didn't, we weren't able to see each other that often. But when I saw that, I, I noticed like there were a few red flags on my end that I noticed, but we can talk about that later if, if you want to. And I to. think this is so important. Like, yes, the relationship mm-hmm. is between the two people and that is our yeah. social convention that we understand. Mm-hmm. But there is a role for friends and family when someone is in a relationship, um, given kind of this, you know, the story I'm sharing here today is not unique. I'm sure no. people that are will be listening to this and say, you know, I've gone through the same thing, or I saw my friend go through the same thing, or I saw my family member go through the same thing. These are yeah. repetitive patterns Absolutely. You know, that we see over and over again in unhealthy relationships. Absolutely, I agree. So uh, you were in a graduate program when you were just married, right? You were still in a graduate program? Yeah. So I was I was doing a PhD mm-hmm. when I had met my ex-husband, mm-hmm. um, you know, which is one of the things that bothers me till now is that you got into a relationship with someone that was already pursuing a high level of, you know, career advancement and education, you know, right. I always I always think this in retrospect, you knew what you were getting into. Mm-hmm. You know, if that was something you were not interested in, you know, um, you probably should have looked in another direction. Yeah. If he wasn't genuinely interested in, in, in your you advancing yourself as a person, like in your self-development, then I think. But that's another red flag, too. If someone doesn't want you to be your best or the best version of yourself, why are they holding you back? You know, like they must have a huge insecurity. I think that that's what I see in that in this kind of context. Okay, so um, what would he do? Like, did he support you? Was he actually supportive of you doing your PhD? So this is kind of the the, the mo of the narcissist, right? Okay. Um, and and again, like I've seen this happen again and again in my relationship, where you're supportive to a certain extent. Mm-hmm. So that the other person feels you're being supportive. And when that support stops, you know, the, the sort of narcissist partner is able to say, um, it stopped because of your actions, not because of my actions. Remember, I used to do this and I used to do that. Right. Yeah. Um, so this is sort of the, the, the trigger that we were talking about earlier that I was able to realize after I was actually married. So my education was one of the main triggers of the accelerated temper uh, arguments and increasing abuse in my marriage. I would find that arguments would happen around the time that I had to take an exam or the time that I had a big presentation. It was always specifically timed for me to not do well in my program. Um, I saw a massive change after I got pregnant. Uh, You know, what was sort of these infrequent uh, outbursts of temper and of blaming me for things that were entirely out of my control, um, accelerated. They became frequent to the point where I couldn't go 24 hours without being yelled at for something. And this is something that was happening, you know, weeks apart, uh, before. Mm -hmm. And, And you know, while you're pregnant. 
Yeah, when I did was, my research sort of on this after, you know, kind of my my sort of post-trauma coping mechanism was doing research and trying to understand, you know, what had actually happened. I'm the same um, and, way. And during, yeah, during I this time, that. Yeah. I, I met with a lot of, I, I met not with a lot, I met multiple times with uh, a therapist. Mm-hmm. And, you know, one of the things that I sort of discovered through that process was... Was that the sort of narcissist personality involves a personality type where everyone in that person's life is an extension of that person. They're there to serve that person. Um, And when it was found that I was pregnant, you know, his thinking was, now that should be your focus because this child is going to be an extension of me. You should have no other priorities in your life. And the abuse uh, accelerated a lot during that time. I have a quick question. When you got pregnant, had you already graduated? No, I was still studying at the time. I was still studying at the time. Okay, okay. Was he pushing you to get pregnant? Like, was he really encouraging the idea or? No, no, I I did want kids myself. Um, But but my understanding of what uh, raising a family uh, with a partner was, was very different from his understanding that, you know, all members of the household are there to serve him. So eventually, you know, at the very end of our marriage, uh, he said to me, you know, what does getting your PhD do to serve your husband? I think I had gone to the library and I had studied and maybe I had missed dinner, you know, something had happened that evening. Right. Came back and he said, what does that do? You know, how does that help me? Yeah, the world revolves around him, I guess. But it was clear. It was clear in that moment, you know, at the end of our marriage. But that is what he was saying all along. But he wasn't using those direct words. Mm -hmm. I see. So, um, and he, I think you had told me that he found like a card you got to say congratulations on your PhD as well. And you had already given birth at this time? I did. So when I finished my PhD, I had a six-week-old newborn. Oh, wow. And, um, you know, I, 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 one thing I'll say, I'm proud of myself for being able to finish it under those conditions Me because, too. Me you too. know, so proud of I you. didn't have help with child rearing. You know, that was mm-hmm. on my own. I did my PhD dissertation defense sort of, you know, with a newborn in the stroller next to me. That's amazing. Um, You know, I didn't have, I didn't have help in that regard. Um, So at this point I had, I was determined that the process of the PhD that I started before I even met my ex was something that was very important to me. My education has been very important to me. My career has always been very important to me. Um, and I don't feel that that I feel that that has added worth to my life. I don't feel that that's taken away from family life or for any anything else, really, in that regard, from friendships, from, you know, I feel that that is something that people have respected in me and yeah. became sort of a core part of my personality. Mm-hmm. But by this time, I realized, you know, there was going to be issues when I had major educational requirements like exams or presentations that I needed to get through. So I decided, and this is just really in the last two weeks of my marriage, right? We're at the end here. That I'm not going to tell my husband at the time 
when my dissertation defense was, because I was honestly at that point, you know, my eyes are starting to open, worried that I would not make it to my defense if he knew what date it was on. Wow. So I got up that morning and me and the baby went to the university and I did my dissertation defense. So the tradition um, in a lot of places is that when you complete your defense in front of your committee, you toast to champagne. Right. This is the the Western tradition of finishing a PhD. Okay. Um, and at the time I was nursing and I said, you know, I, I'm, I told my committee, you know, you go ahead. I'm not going to have any champagne. And uh, they said, no, no, take it home. So they put it in the bag and the bag, the card on the bag says, congratulations, Dr. Jasmine. Right. So I... I go home and I say, you know, let me just give this champagne and this nice bag to my neighbors. You know, they're so friendly. They're always helping out with things. So I rip the card off that has my name on it and I leave it on the kitchen table and I go next door to give this gift uh, to my neighbors. Uh, And he found that card. And I think reading, you know, Dr. Jasmine on that card was probably the the breaking point for him because I had acquired the title, right? Mm -hmm. Right now, up until now, it was all theoretical. Right. You know, would she actually do it? Would she actually finish? Or will she just, you know, now focus on the baby that she has? Right. Um, and for me always, there, there was no distinction. Focusing on the baby is part of bettering your, bettering yourself is focusing on your family. Right. Yeah. So, um, It was within 24 hours of him finding that card that uh, we separated. Okay. Can you explain the process that you have to go through? Right. So how we actually separated was, you know, at this point, our neighbors were familiar. We were in a condo with hearing the arguing. Okay. Um, This was among the worst uh, fights we had that night and the same neighbors that I gave the bottle of champagne to actually called the cops okay yeah I was actually gonna ask you if there was police involvement um Jasmine are you comfortable sharing was there physical abuse in the relationship and while you were pregnant too because this is a real common tactic of um, men involved in domestic violence like I've, I've also done research about it before you know um doing this interview with you and I've seen a lot of the even the police questionnaires when they when they're assessing risk of a domestic violence partner the perpetrator they act one of the questions is were you abused during pregnancy so there was physical abuse but I don't want to focus on it and I'm going to tell Mm -hmm. you why because this was a very minimum um, portion of the abuse I received and I think that psychological abuse verbal abuse Mm-hmm. is just as harmful, but it's even more difficult for maybe law enforcement or for just the general public to really grasp that this is a mm-hmm. true form of abuse. Isolating mm-hmm. from friends and family, psychological abuse. This is just as serious as the other kind. And I would say that that's what made up the majority of my marriage. The other okay. stuff happened a couple times in isolation, but I would have arrived at the same place even without it. Yeah, I understand. I understand. Because, so yeah, those same neighbors, I was saying, they they call the cops. The cops come. They say, you know, this is a domestic issue. You know, we're here to see what the situation was. And uh, he wasn't able to control his temper. Um, 
And, you know, this is a very dangerous situation because the geographic location that this was happening in, normally if there's a domestic situation and there's a child involved, social services get involved to check on the well-being of the child. Correct. Um, You know, I don't know if I was lucky or that I was just, you know, I guess lucky that I received two officers that were very uh, experienced to come to the scene. That essentially said, we see this every single day. Yep. And they said, we're not going to write a police report on this incident because um, we can see that the child is essentially in good hands. You know, you're able to sit down rationally and talk to us, explain that you're the sole child, uh, you know, child rearer in the household. Um, You know, we're not going to write a report. You know, let's not make it messy. We don't see our assessment on the ground is that this child is not in harm if this individual is removed from the home. Exactly. Okay, so that that's a good point that you made. Fine. Like, thank God the child is not at harm, but he needs to be removed. So I. So he was. Any records he he had that? to leave. He had to mm-hmm. leave with the officers that night. And it was some months later that he was escorted uh, with police presence to remove his belongings. Oh, wow. So I was okay. not there at that time. I left the condo. Um, he came in with uh, two police officers and removed his his stuff. Thank you so much for listening to Jasmine's story. I really hope that she's inspired you so far. And there's so many more great inspirational stories to share in part two of this episode series. Please listen out as she's going to tell us more about her positive experience with the legal system even though she was forced to leave the country with a baby. She really has some great news for us at the end of it. And again, I really hope that she inspires you to stay strong for yourself and to stay strong for your friends too.